Hey everyone, welcome back. Following on from last week's exciting episode where Zach and I quizzed Mike about what it was like to be a vendor, be on the receiving end uh, of all of those sales calls, uh, we thought it was uh, only fair to give him some turnaround and give some insight into what it's like being on the seller side uh, to be trying to pitch enterprise tools to those difficult cantankerous buyers inside of big companies. Without further ado, I thought it might be worth giving a brief rundown of uh, where we've come from in terms of enterprise sales. And it's worth mentioning right here in the introduction that we're going to be talking about two major errors in enterprise software selling. This is the old world, which was very much top down. Salespeople would try to get a relationship with the top of organizations, with C-level people or VPs, people with purchasing power, with budget authority. And they would focus exclusively pretty much on those people, knowing that if they could persuade those people to sign the check, the users further down the pecking order wouldn't have much choice. They would just need to use whatever was chosen as the corporate tool. Over the last few years, and we can argue back and forth about exactly when this transition happened, it was driven by a number of factors, uh, the increasing quality and availability of open source software being one and uh, various as a service options being another, developers and users and admins in general have become much more important to the process to the point that some refer to them as the new kingmakers. And so we have this situation in which there are still a lot of salespeople out there who are still trying to do that top-down sale, but they're not finding it nearly so easy because sure, they can still pull their tricks uh, with management, but that management person after the meeting is going to turn around to their in-house tech people and say, hey, so does this make any sense what uh, that person just tried to sell me? And people will have opinions and they may even have already been using the open source version of the tech or whatever. And so it's no longer the case that you can just pull those dirty tricks that, uh, that Mike was mentioning, or at least not with nearly as much expectation of impunity. Yeah, I'm kind of excited about today, guys, because I get to make uh, you guys squirm a little, which is uh, which is going to be fun. No no, no offense, uh, hopefully on, on your end, but it's, it's always interesting. And, and you're absolutely right, Dominic, because... We're always going to verify with uh, with our technical leads, and then when the technical leads or, or the experts come to us, you know we're gonna we're gonna do our our homework and make sure that we all agree on a solution. I think people underestimate the amount of buy-in that is needed in an organization because even if I have a strong conviction about whatever a salesman is selling, or if my admins have a strong conviction. You know, we all have to have at least some level of conviction that we can, yeah, a buy the product, it'll return its value, and we can implement it and get that value. I don't know that everybody sees like kind of all three of those pegs when they're when they're pitching to us, or they're just like, okay, how do I get this sale the quickest? And from my side, it's always interesting, like, how are you approaching it? How are the enterprise sellers approaching it? And what is the best way? Does it depend on your product? I mean, what, what do you guys think? Well, I think, you know, from my experience, this is where you separate a lot of the sales reps and a lot of startups. So Dominic and I are I would still consider where you are, Dominic, somewhat of a startup. You're still battling the big giant. And what you just described is a different way and a different approach. I think Dominic alluded to it, and that is, you know, it is not one person inside an account, right? So it's that multi-leg stool. And those messages might vary a little bit, but, you know, you have to have a broad understanding. And we talked about it last week of the business. You have to do some homework. You have to understand how you can help them. You have to understand uh, more than just the technology, I think, um, 
more so now than ever. And I think that world is changing for a lot of sales reps. Oh, it has already changed and they're being forced to recognize it uh, just over the last uh, couple of years. Sometimes I regret that I joined this industry maybe a little bit too late. Early in my career, I was at a company called Mercury or Mercury Interactive, which was later bought by HP. But there are a lot of reps there that were ex-digital or deck people. And they were telling all these stories from just a few years previous to that. Oh yeah, we'd just go down to Cannes and rent a yacht for the conference and uh, what? <laughs> and I thought it was exciting if we could go to the pub and expense the beers. That, that was uh, the sort of level that I was looking at. But there are all these stories of uh, certain storage companies that would make a lot of sales because they owned a golf course. So they, they had an interest in a golf course, whatever the deal was. And they would fly the decision makers there on the corporate jet for a weekend of golfing. And magically on the Monday morning, there would be a signed order form. <laughs> I, think, I think that only works with uh, the World Cup and the Olympics right now. So I, I don't think that works in IT anymore. Uh, at least I hope not. Yeah, but you know, when you're at a startup, it is tough to battle uh, sometimes uh, some of that. I think that is waning. And I, I agree with you, Dominic. I think in the last couple of years, it has changed tremendously. But it's really tough battling that from a startup. You, you typically don't have those type of funds or those type of... Uh, I call it a gray area on some of those deals. I mean, behind the scenes, there's points that are taken out of deals uh, by the partner, by, you know, by the vendor. And, and I think that's a good point. You know, it doesn't end up in the best result for the company nine times out of 10. I want to get back to the points one. But before that, I mean, do you think there's still companies doing the tricks of taking people to yeah, extravagant weekends or, or extravagant, I don't know, experiences? I, I, I think that's a thing of the past, isn't it? I, I think it still happens, but uh, Dominic, I'd like like you go first. I, I'm sure you see it too. Oh yeah, agreed. It's uh, it's by no means universal. It's somewhat regional. There's a lot of variation by industry. So certain industries and certain regions, you'll see more of that. Uh, others, you'll see a lot less. But this also goes along with general cultural change in the industry. I remember in the early years of going to events, IT events, uh, there would be booth babes. Uh, you know, standing in the booth wearing a bikini, holding something or other, but mainly there to attract the foot traffic. And then it became gradually clear to everyone in the industry that this was A, not okay, but B, also it wasn't actually particularly productive. I wrote a blog post about this back at the time and I'll post it in the show notes. But it turned out that the sort of foot traffic that was attracted by the Lame bikinis uh, wasn't really a good conversion prospect. Those people rarely had purchase authority or any real interest in your product even. So it was not that useful as well as being icky and gross and all of those things. So there's been that, that process as well, definitely. Yeah. I think it. I think it's waning. To answer your point, Mike, I don't think we see as much of it, but it is still out there. Uh, again, not as like not like it was. And then you can talk about the cloud consumption. I think that's changing too. So I think part of uh, that, you know, that change is, um, you know, I, I think for sales reps, the, the future is changing. The future is now, and you know how they're going to position their products is, uh, you know, you can go to the marketplace on AWS or or Microsoft. And when you call them, you might have a specific question. And so I think the process is changing a little bit, but I think it's there, but not as much. Are they killing the sales rep, uh, Zach? Because I mean, let, let, let's face it, if you're buying like, uh, so there's only three real cloud players. If anybody thinks there's another, they're being duped, but it's like GCP, it's Azure, it's AWS. I mean, you just go there, punch in your credit card number, you're ordering things. I mean, does that make the salesperson, the whole sales process irrelevant? Is that where we're going? 
I believe I wouldn't say irrelevant, but the role I believe is changing. Yes. The answer that I'm going to say is yes. I think also the channel, I think some of the large channel partners have not pivoted either. They're, they're attached to the hip. And that's the other thing too, Mike, you may not realize this, but there are so many conversations behind the scenes that the customer's not even aware of where the, the rep is meeting, the vendor rep is meeting with the channel rep and they're, you know, sharing notes and information and, and kind of strategically, you know, almost ganging up on the customer at times. And I don't want to give everybody a bad rap because it's not that way in a lot of these opportunities, but we'd be, you know, we'd be putting our head in the sand to say that, oh, this doesn't happen. It does happen. As a matter of fact, it happens more so with the larger vendors uh, because let's be honest, they're big and they, they have the relationships with these large, you know, the channel is very tough for a startup to build and, and to get moving. And so you see this mostly with some of the bigger ones. Honestly, from my side, on, on the customer side sitting there, it is uh, really annoying when, you know, we're having a discussion with um, uh, with a vendor. And then all of a sudden, next thing we know, like, hey, what whatever we shared with them, it's all of a sudden everybody's business and everybody's talking about it. And, you know, it, it you know, I, I think it might be something that everybody does. But for us, there's some level of yeah, trust that gets lost quickly because now the next conversation, we're going to be really guarded. And I think you just made, you know, getting to sale a little harder for yourself. Yeah. What happens right. behind the scenes is they will do a deal registration and they'll get extra you know, points typically. And uh, that just allows them, in my opinion, flexibility mm -hmm. to, to do things, you know, uh, and of course, to get this deal registered, they have to prove they found the deal. So there is some, you know, there is some, uh, you know, they should have that, but it brings in these other issues. And to answer your question earlier, I'll say it again. I do think the role is going to change. I don't know that it'll be eliminated, but I think the role is definitely changing. And and the account managers that that, that have been positioning the right way are going to be fine. And there are a lot of other ones that uh, that are going to struggle. I think the salespeople that are going to go away in this transition, uh, a lot of those are in the channel, the, the famous VARs, the value added resellers. Many of those, it turns out, don't actually add much value uh, in this new world. And so many of those roles will disappear. So I'll say salespeople will still be around. Account management will still be a thing, but only for the people and the companies and the functions where that provides value to all parties. Uh, so I've changed my role recently. I'm doing some market analysis, and a lot of that involves calling up sales reps to understand, hey, so you won this deal against competitor X what was the key factor so that we can replicate that elsewhere and incorporate it in product planning and so on. And the good reps are the ones who will talk to me for half an hour about what their prospects or their customer by this point was trying to achieve before they ever mention any of our product differentiation or the competitor's stumbles. Uh, by that point, I will completely understand exactly what the landscape was, the, the problem space, uh, and they are able to articulate that for me so, so clearly. They understand their customer's business and they're genuinely aligned to that. So they're trying to get the fabled win-win-win scenario in which everyone comes out happy because the customers solved a business problem they had. Uh, we got to place our tech. The rep got to, yeah, they made their pound of flesh. They made their quota, but they earned it by uh, making that situation happen that first contact Dominic like you, you know and I don't I don't want to talk about like the customer that you you have and okay you're going to expand the, the business with them I mean that happens all over the place especially if you have a, a trusting relationship right but how do you make first contact like how's that like first contact like how are you getting those is it really from like partners telling you hey I think this customer um, 
you know, is, is, could be interested or a potential customer? Like where are you, are you getting those, those first contacts from? Yeah, that's the black art right there. It used to be, uh, it was very much a word of mouth type situation as you mentioned, and that was the world in which the value-added reseller uh, might really, really earn their crust uh, because they would be in an account selling printers and then they would hear a need for whatever and they would go around their various partners. The negative aspect of that uh, would be that often they wouldn't be sh they wouldn't be introducing the best technology partner to their customer. They would be introducing the one that was most profitable to them, the one that gave them the highest cuts, the uh, most maintenance dollars, whatever it was. And so that, that was very much the, the old world. These days, it works in a couple of different ways. Uh, so there's a lot of use of social media. So people will say on LinkedIn, I am trying to do something or other. And we follow up on that. I know you did say last week that by the time you're talking about something on social media, you've already made a decision. You may already be some way down the road to implementing even, but I can tell you from experience, there are lots of people who will go on social media, uh, genuinely, uh, still in, in the investigation phase, but what is even more powerful is self-propelled. So, uh, Google calls this uh, day zero. Uh, so before, any salesperson, anyone with sales in their title, or even any employee of the vendor has made contact. There's this, uh, in, there's this phase where the, the company is investigating the buyer, the prospective buyer is investigating what's out there. They're doing Google searches. They're going on stack overflow. They're going on hacker news. They're doing all of these things. And so there's this new discipline around marketing around placing information out there where it'll be found, going to the watering holes, so to speak, where customers gather already and uh, enticing people to take the next step themselves. So putting something out there that's, uh, you know, in a finance forum that an exec for a bank would think was relevant, either a story about another bank who implemented the technology or a a news piece talking about some general trend in the industry and mapping it to something that uh, the particular vendor does. These types of things, that's much more the way of the world. And the final piece of the puzzle is, as I said, open source and as a service offerings have added a new dimension where it's much easier to get your hands on the technology in the real world in practice. It used to be getting a pilot off the ground, getting a proof of concept uh, installation going was a major step. And so from a vendor perspective, we are all trained, uh, to reserve that card. You don't want to do a POC on spec because it's expensive as a vendor. You want to do that as a closing step. We've already agreed dear customer that if I can demonstrate to you that the technology does X and Y, you will give me a million dollars. Yes. Okay. Only then does the POC get off the ground. But from the customer point of view, that's, oh my God, I've got to give this big commitment before I can even see the thing running. What is this? In the new world, it's open source. You can download it. You can run it. Uh, you can spin a free instance up in the clouds and play with it to your heart's content. Uh, the licensing of many enterprise products will allow you even to run it long-term, build production uh, services on it before you ever engage with the vendor. And so at that point, when uh, the sales rep comes through the door, if they've done their job right, if the tech works and if they've engaged in good faith with those users who have not yet paid any money, 
there will already be a groundswell of goodwill that they can ride uh, all the way to getting the, the big enterprise deal and the support contracts and all of that. There's, there's a lot of truth in that. I, I'm glad you brought that point up. I want to go back and there's, you know, execution without strategy is inefficient. There are several uh, firms out there now, and there's all about this new approach to, to the customer. It's not your typical dialing for dollars, you know, inside sales. It's not your typical going out there and selling. So Mike, earlier you said, you know, do you think that the role is going away? I don't. I think it's changing the traditional role where we used to three, four, five years ago. Yes, that that is going away, but it is changing. You know, how do you reach these people, Dominic? The, these these new firms, and I know you you've probably heard of them. I mean, they focus on you know uh, surveys, uh, Servata data. I mean, they just they know everything about these clients. Uh, you know, before they reach out to them, and it's it's kind of like merging marketing and sales together. That that's what these new roles are. As a matter of fact, there's somebody we should bring on as a guest who is. Uh, you know, uh, in, knows in depth this whole world, and uh, it's it's interesting. But it, it kind of proves our point that uh, you know selling to the enterprise is changing, and I think that benefits the startups. I really do. How, how much are you guys worried about reputation? I mean, when when I think of like when when we start a discussion, right, uh, first contact, I, I'm gonna go whether I've done my my homework before. To figure out, all right, these are the the three or four companies I want to talk to about A, B, and C. You know, I'm and, and then when I talk to A, B, and C, I'm going to ask other people and other companies that you've done business with about your reputation. Not referenceable customers, but people I know that you're doing business with, either because you've told me or I've done my, you know, I, I've I've reached out to my network. Um, how, how worried are you about managing the reputation about projects that go sideways? I mean, is there is there any work being done on on that side of it? I think reputation, especially for a startup, is important. I think it's critical. Um, you know, reputation also extends down to to the team, and I always take that seriously. I think that's you know that's all we have, uh, especially you know if you're not going to be somewhere for twenty years, you know your your reputation is important. The reputation of the product and the company is equally as important, and I think uh, I think that's what you're touching on. That is very very serious. Uh, one of the most uh, important things for any uh, not even startup, any big vendor is case studies, use cases, customer references. These things are invaluable. And so everybody should strive to that and, uh, you know, look, look for that. No, I agree entirely. I think that's one thing that's driven the big turnover in uh, who are the relevant enterprise vendors over the last few years. Uh, if you go back, you know, 10, 15 years and then compare that to the field today, there aren't that many names that are common. And part of that is going back to that mechanism I mentioned earlier, lots of techies uh, got that experience early in their careers of, I wanted to use product A, but the smooth sales reps from company B took the big bosses out golfing and then for a steak dinner and then maybe continued on somewhere else. Uh, and now I got my arm twisted into using their crappy product instead of what I really wanted. And so now they're those companies have a, a smell associated with them. Uh, so they have to work twice as hard, even when they might have a good and relevant product to overcome that bad reputation. That might, and vice versa. Yeah, sorry. That, that may be something you guys hear, but I think often when, when let's say a, a very technical resource and, and let's say management disagree, I mean, sometimes it's, 
You, you know, I, I, I talk about the heroes in IT, right? And, and we got a lot of heroes who are going to pull something together, make it work great. But then, you know, I, I talk about like how sustainable is that? And, and some people might be pushing like a product, a service, uh, a software that's great. But then the sustainability of that it is not feasible long-term to a company. So I think management mm -hmm. takes that, looks at it, and then starts to go against, let's say, your technical expert, experts, because they believe, yes, this is the best product, but we look at it and we know, hey, to run this, to keep this going, like it, it's not sustainable. And I think that's sometimes that is so lost on uh, a, an organization selling to us. And it's so hard for them to make um, you know, the leap from very technical to like, Hey, how do I support this long-term? I, I don't oh, know. Yeah. Yeah. Tactics versus strategy. Right. I've, I'm probably going to muddle up the quote, but there's something about, uh, kernel study tactics, uh, general study strategy, but, uh, the, the staff generals, they study logistics <laughs> and that that's kind of what we're talking about. So, uh, you know, low level or early career, let's say techie, might choose the interesting technology without thinking about, uh, oh, this is version 1.0, maybe it's not fully baked. Uh, behind it, there's two coders and a dog. And so who knows if they'll be around? And is there a base of people that we can hire to help us work on this thing if it takes off? There are all those factors, but they should be part of the technical analysis as well. I, I would put those in the the conflict bucket. If someone is making a recommendation based on this is the latest, coolest thing, and I want it because of that for something that's production service, then I would guess they're not uh, particularly senior employee, or maybe if they, if they are, they shouldn't be because that's a part of seniority is thinking about those things. You know, I think also it's important to call out you know, 10, 15 years ago, technology was important, but it was mostly email, some applications. Today, I think Companies and Mike, I'd like your thoughts, but I think companies need to move very fast. They need to be very agile. And so the selling motion today, I think also has to be different, has to be very succinct. You have to go ahead and, you know, when you have these discussions, I think they should at least mean more internally, Mike. That's what I want to ask you when you're having these discussions. Are they different from 15 years ago as they are today? Or are they the same? I, I think the business, how, how do they, what role do they play, Mike? I'm curious in your decisions 10, 15 years ago, I would imagine they weren't. And today I would imagine they are, but, um, quick, I'd like to hear it's, it's, it's quite, I mean, look, the business cycle has compressed. So for, for a company and, you know, we manufacture goods, we sell the goods that, that business cycle is compressed, right? It's, it's, it's like super fast. We, we need to get information out. We need to be good. Like our salespeople need to be good. Our service people need to be great. We, we need to build great products. And I, I, I think that goes in, in the same way for uh, any company trying to sell us a solution. So if we have like, Hey, we've had a, a great first meeting. Maybe we want to continue this discussion, but then somebody gets like, let's say, bored with that or thinks like it's a it's a long way to to make that sale. But we're still interested. Yeah, we're going to drop that discussion, even though we think it's 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 the right fit for us. For the simple reason, if if you're not responding to me now, can you imagine after we sign an agreement or after we make a sale, what it's going to look like? And and we, <laughs> and we think about that. So yeah, we're judging companies and vendors every step of the way not only that but you know one thing that ticks me off is when i'm 
I'm dealing with a salesperson and it's like always defer to, oh, I need to get my technical experts. I think we're expecting people that come to our door or come to meetings to, to have all the answers or to bring the right team. A little put off when you bring a large team, but I think, you know, people are need to become a little more like uh, experts in their domain, but at the same time have a bit of that generalist approach so they can talk to me, to the technical people and to the people above me. I, I think that has to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So that goes to, again, a couple of points that, that we've been talking about the whole time. The role of a salesperson is definitely changing. It's expected that they know their product uh, to a much greater extent than, than they might have a few years ago. So early in my career, I was uh, the pre-sales person and I would go out there with a the salesperson and the salesperson would, maybe they would deliver the corporate intro slides and then they would sit back and I would do the, the dog and pony show and show off the technology and the salesperson would be uh, dozing with their eyes open, thinking of their golf score or whatever house they wanted to buy. And that, that doesn't fly anymore. The salespeople uh, have to be able to uh, be a lot more independent to talk about the product sensibly. Uh, we do a lot of work behind the scenes. So that was one of the things I wanted to talk about, you know, lifting the curtain a little bit. There's a lot of work goes on behind the scenes to enable salespeople. Uh, this is a job that uh, in 2020 requires constant study and homework. You have to be up to date on what your product is doing, what the competitor's product is doing. Things are moving fast and you're going to have to be able to talk about that without the crutch of the sales engineer or the pre-sales person, whatever it's called, right beside you. That that world of the four-legged sales team, as it used to be called, uh, is gone. So, uh, so honestly speaking, are are salespeople disposable? And can you train anybody to be a salesperson? No, you cannot. I, I, I can say that because I've tried. I've tried to be a salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. You need a certain killer instinct. Uh, there's, I, I was okay at it, but I. I wasn't as effective as the, the true salespeople. You can you can smell that on them. Uh, I'm I'm good at what I do, and selling is not that. Uh, but the good salespeople, as I said, they they have that true instinct to go deep into their customers' business to understand what's important to them, and to do that mapping uh, back to well, whatever they have on the truck that day, whatever product they're trying to sell. So to some extent, a good salesperson can learn to sell different things. At a previous company, the best sales rep that I worked with had actually been selling Volvo cars six months previously and never sold enterprise software, but he was sort of interested in his in his spare time and applied to, to a role and we took him on in a sales dev uh, position. And within six months, he was out there with his own patch and just blowing away the numbers because he had that instinct to understand what his customers needed. Uh, he was just super good at that. I stress this a lot right now, Mike. Uh, and I always do, by the way, not just where I'm at now, but you have to be very succinct. I think you have five or 10 minutes to capture their attention, to, especially as a startup. And especially now we talk oh, about- Oh, if that. Yeah. If, if customers <laughs> had any idea how much we drill the salespeople on the elevator pitch you have 30 seconds in the elevator with the CIO of your top customer. How do you persuade them to give you a meeting? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Especially especially now when you have cloud. So a lot of times now there's this, uh, I wouldn't call it the easy out because there's a lot of advantages. You have to differentiate and you have to do that to your point. Yeah, much quicker perhaps. But, uh, you know, if they have a meeting, a 30-minute meeting, it, it's very important. And, I, you know, um, 
whether it's two or three slides and don't even talk to the slides, but it's, uh, there used to be a book called questions based selling. I don't, I don't see much of that anymore either. Everybody just, uh, you know, they want to say what they do and what we do well. And they, the message isn't really succinct, but, um, you're right, Dominic. Yeah. If that an elevator pitch. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's what's key to building that credibility. And then those salespeople have that reputation and the vendor has that reputation that people will start to be more willing to engage and vice versa. And I think this one is a, a name that's fair to name. you mentioned to any enterprise buyer, the name Oracle, and they start backing away and raising their hands and uh, crossing themselves. And please don't audit me. Everyone's dealt with the, the some really abstruse pricing strategies that they have. So you never know how much you owe them and they tell you a number and you just you know, shrug and bear it. So what can you do? No, or, no one, no one is more grateful uh, for Oracle than, than IBM as they've gone on uh, number one on like the, the blacklist of most companies, but let's, let's not go there. So, so because it is, it, it is quite funny, right? And that, that relationship just tenses up, right? And I think there is a relationship aspect that builds over, uh, over time. So from first contact to, to first sale, I mean, how long does that typically take? Cause I mean, some of you are building relationships, right? Yeah, it totally depends on the product. Uh, so I have uh, personally seen situations where it was literally two weeks from first contact to sale. And that was an even funnier one. That was uh, a few years ago. Now a customer called us out of the blue before this was a common sales motion and said, hey, so I've been researching this stuff in the market and I've talked to three big competitors of yours and each one of them went out of his way to mention you. And you guys weren't on our radar, but since they took so much time bad-mouthing you, I thought I should at least check you out. Uh, so we gave them a demo right then and there on the phone. And it was, oh, this is so cool. We have to try it. Uh, can we have a test license? Sure, here you go. And sure enough, a week later, we were into a selling motion with them. <laughs> you know, I, I like what you said, negative selling. I, I, I'm not a fan of it. I don't think it works. Uh, Mike, I'm curious if you still see some of that, but that whole notion of going in and talking bad about the competitor, just it, it doesn't work. I think you go in there and you tell them what you do well. And if you understand their business and where their pain points are, you're going to be successful. Mike, do you still see any of that with vendors? There's not so much negative selling. I mean, I think, you know... It's easy to think that um, what we might think of another vendor, like if, if, you know, vendor A might think we think bad of vendor B, but to be honest, I mean, look, you're every vendor we're going to have rough patches with, right? I mean, it, you know, things might be great one month, might not be great another month. I, I think the strength is how you work through those, those rough patches. So, you know, once you sign an agreement with somebody, let's say like it's a managed servant is long term, you're going to work at that agreement. You're not going to easily give up on it. I mean, it, it takes a lot to give up on one and not to say that it doesn't happen. Uh, but typically we're working at it. Right. And um, so, so I think that mm -hmm. negative selling or, or bashing, you know, one vendor versus another, that's a, tif a tough one. I think where it becomes tougher is these, like, I don't know how to put it, but these like, these VARs that resell one product or, or you know, three, four products, we, we always question like, why are they pushing this on us instead of that other product? Is it because of, because of points, because of like, where is it? And, it, you know, I, I, I always, you know, why do I have to go through partners for some products? Why can't I buy direct? And I think, I, I think that's something that needs to change for, for a lot of people on your side. 
because more and more of us want to want to go direct. I, I think, you know, let's be honest, I think Cisco has this problem, uh, but I think others have this problem as well, right? Yeah, well, Cisco famously has this fully indirect sales model. Unless you're one of the top companies in the world, you can't buy direct. You have to buy through someone. And, and, then, that... and then they're shocked that I that I won't take a meeting with them. But you know what? The, I, I don't. I, I mean, where's the value? I'm talking to someone else about Cisco's capabilities, not, yeah. not them. I don't have the relationship with you. I have the relationship with my local person. I'm going to talk to them. Absolutely. Uh, no, it's, I, I think. Like I was saying earlier, certain partners that just sit in the chain and uh, take a cut both ways and don't really add value, uh, I think that is uh, a figure that's going to go away, is already going away. Uh, in other parts of the of the ecosystem, there is a role for, uh, sometimes it's called a Sherpa uh, type of partner. So let's say you're trying to sell into a fairly specialized industry, public sector is one, pharmaceuticals are another. Uh, as a vendor, especially an early stage startup, you may not have the expertise in-house of how to sell to those people. What's the, what do they value? What do they require to be able to do business with you? Uh, that sort of thing. And so having these boutique consultants that can show you the ropes in a particular industry that can introduce you to relevant people that can broker introductions with uh, not necessarily prospective customers, but influencers, the sorts of people who might uh, speak at a dinner, you arrange uh, that sort of thing. Those, I think, still have value. But again, it goes back to, I think, what's been the theme of this conversation, the relationships and the respect and building and maintaining those. Yeah, I want to bring up another uh, angle here, if we can. There's this false notion with startups that there is risk associated with uh, purchasing solutions or products from startups, when in fact, these startups don't go away. They most all the time are acquired. Um, and I think there's more risk with some startups being acquired by some companies. You know, talk about Cisco. They acquired a company yesterday. They announced uh, Thousand Eyes. But these acquisitions, you know, they take yeah. a year to integrate, if not more. So you're not going to see any value out of that for a year and a half or two. And you're risking that the integration will be smooth. I mean, I'm not... Uh, uh, so if I'm not picking on Cisco, but, you know, they acquired an SD-WAN company a few years ago. There's the struggles are well documented by the analyst, um, you know, so there's more risk in that, I think, than purchasing, you know, directly from a startup. As a matter of fact, and I want to get your thoughts, Mike, but uh, and I know you have thoughts here. Startups bring innovation. So we said earlier that you have compressed timelines, Mike. I think sometimes you need that startup agility. And so I'll tie it into the channel. And this is where it becomes a problem because those channels that are only coming to you with that one or two or maybe four or five solutions they have because it's all they sell, you're missing out. I mean, you are missing out on that. So, you know, the question is, you know, as a startup, you know, how can we get in front of people like you, Mike, and and are you aware you might be missing out? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't think the, look, the channel's in trouble, right? I mean, we're, we're doing research other ways. And I think, you know, one thing that surprised me is you guys said like, you indirectly said that like white papers work, right? To, to pull in business, right? But I think, you know, if we look at where we're getting um, kind of traction with startups, it's really at um, some of the events that people are at. Uh, and yeah, word of mouth. Um, and then also what we what we research on the internet. I, I don't know how you guys convert that, but there is a risk going with the startup, right? There There's great innovation, but sometimes there's, 
like I, I, let, let's group the startups into two. One, I make a product and I'm great at it. And two, I deliver a service and I can execute on that service and we will execute on anything for you, right? The guys who make the product and I'm looking at the product, yeah, there's a, there's a big risk that they get acquired somewhere. So let's say you are you sell product X, Y, and Z and your competitor is Amazon. And let's say this company that you're buying a product from, then all of a sudden gets acquired from Amazon. Yeah, let me tell you, that is a huge risk, right? So, you know, people, let's say people who have storefronts that are built on, let's take Shopify. You know, Shopify a few years ago was in talks with Google to get acquired by Google. Uh, obviously, that that didn't go. But if they went the Google route or the Amazon route, you know, all those people have built now all their storefronts on that Shopify platform, yeah, they should be scared, right? Because now, now your data has gone to to Big Brother and gone to a competitor in in, in essence who can who, who can you know kind of cut you off. So you know, and this happens in many other industries. So there is some of that risk, and I think we're we're always thinking of it. You know, whether we say it or not, maybe we're telling you like, ah, no, don't worry about it. We trust you, but no, it, it's it's. There's there's always a plan B in case something like that happens. I I, I assure you. Yeah, and, and that's where that same dichotomy that I mentioned with the the salespeople and the technical engineers that go with them. It's what you want to see in the startup side as well. You want the brilliant technical minds that created this this thing that's amazing that's revolutionizing the market potentially. But how are you actually going to get that to market? How are you going to ensure its long-term viability? And that's where you want to see, you know, the people with the gray hairs, uh, the people who've been around the block, who've ideally done this before and can show you some scars and talk to you about what their plan for the company, not the product, not the technology is to ensure that uh, that you're happy with that. So that's a whole other aspect of selling. You're not selling the products even. And again, going behind the curtain a little bit, this is the sort of thing that in-house we talk about as a holistic differentiator. So it's not either a unique differentiator or a competitive differentiator. Unique is something only we can do, none of our competitors can do. Competitive, we can do it, others can do it, but we think our way is better for reasons X, Y, and Z. But then holistic is the soft stuff. Uh, we have the experienced investors who are guiding us. We have the founders who have done this before. Uh, we have deep pockets. We won't go out of business tomorrow. It would be hard to buy us. We're a big, a big mouthful. Uh, those sorts of things. That, that's the sort of thing that we tell salespeople to, to bring up in these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think you, you, you need to, because it's, it's always at the, I, I mean, look, when, when companies get acquired, there's always an, 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 an easiness talking to their customers about, yeah, we've been acquired. This is what we expect to happen, but we'll see. It's a journey. You, you know, we're always going to get the same, um, the same rigmarole from, from everybody who gets acquired or merges with somebody else, right? That it, it just happens, um, naturally. And this happens to large companies as well. There's mergers, so I think we need to remember that. But you know, it's not just startups; it's definitely all around. But I, I like your like your point, Mike and Dominic. You're right. This is, goes back to the sales motion and very succinct. Uh, you have that elevator pitch, and then you have to go ahead and um, articulate why you know why you're gonna, why the technology is going to be around a while. So, guys, give me some nuggets. Like, how how do I get the best deal from a from from a, a, a vendor? I mean, how how do I get the most points? When, when do I know that I've I've got the best deal? That that's what that's what I really want to know. Is it times like this when it's end of month and I can just squeeze the lemon? I mean, how, how do I really know? 
Well, that's when it always works. Uh, ask them when their quarter ends, what their quota looks like. But no, again, the, the good salespeople, they will work with you on that too. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about last time. Uh, it's not so much a question of big enterprise suites anymore. Most people are assembling their suite, so to speak, from a whole bunch of independent components. And there are a lot more small projects flying in loose formation. Some of them might even be driven by the business. We had this conversation uh, in the chat, and I think it's worth uh, maybe bringing it up next week. At this point, we're already going a bit long about shadow IT. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, they, they're going to work with you because they want to build a long-term relationship. They want to give you a small project today and make it successful so that they can get the big project tomorrow. And if part of that is giving away a little something today and telling you that they're doing it, um, the good ones will do that. They will figure out a way to square that circle and make it work for everyone. Yeah, and I'll add to that. I, I think, Mike, there's always an opportunity to keep all parties to, interested in giving you the best price. And so, uh, for example, you mentioned Cisco. If you have Cisco in your data center, I think a multi-vendor approach, you know, bring in another competitor, give them a small little project to Dominic's point that can grow. It could be uh, AWS and you bring in another vendor that might compete with them and i think what you'll see is you'll see competitive pricing you'll see uh you know uh you know deals that are going to be much different than what you have today uh, more points things like that and then um you know it's uh, even on the channel side right there's competitiveness there so i i'm a big proponent and we talked about open as well i'm a big proponent of a multi-vendor approach and it can be done because most of your protocols up and down the stack uh, you know, they're common protocols. They're, they're, they're industry standards. So there, there should be no reason oh, why. Wins. Yes, yes, there should be. Yeah. Exactly. There should be no reason this can't happen. So, Mike, uh, you know, if I were on the other side of the desk, I would absolutely do that. Find a small deal. Let my rep know for whatever technology that is, the big the big rep, what I'm doing. Uh, and I think you'll see everything from your service, not just from your sales rep and from a price point perspective, but how they service the account, more attention, um, more updates on what's going on. So, uh, Dominic, yeah. I, that's what I think. What do you think? Absolutely. And one closing thought from me on that, because A, we're uh, coming up to my next appointment, but also we've been talking for quite some time. The other thing is to figure out, so, you know, what sort of soft offerings can you add on top? Uh, if I give you a reference, if I agree to act as a reference for your next prospect, uh, can you knock another few points off? If I come to speak at your event, can you knock a few points off? If I talk to analysts uh, on your behalf about my experience uh, with your stuff. And that has a twofold uh, benefit as well from the buyer's point of view, is that you know that that seller is going to be super motivated to keep you happy uh, once you're committed to talking to an analyst because they want you to say nice things about them. Uh, so as well as the immediate discount, you might also be getting some extra service on that side. So I would say don't just look at the dollars. Also, I think of additional benefits. Awesome discussion, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I think this one is going to run and run. So soon we'll be back to this one and maybe we can pick up that thread about shadow it as well fantastic looking forward to it guys thank you everybody have a good one talk to you next time